part of what happens with um, sort of people who have imposter feelings is, is that they suffer in silence. Um, they don't want, oftentimes they don't want people to know that they are having these feelings. And particularly if you are in very competitive environments, you don't want to give people, you know, any sort of advantage to get a step up on you. And so you, you, you keep what you might perceive to be a weakness to yourself. But, but what we need to remember is that you are not alone, that if you are sort of feeling like an imposter, I can promise you that there are other people who are likely feeling the same way. Welcome back to the DEI Podcast. I'm Max Gaston. On today's episode, we're revisiting one of our favorite conversations from season one, where we talked about the imposter phenomenon with Dr. Kevin Coakley. Dr. Coakley is a research psychologist at the University of Michigan who studies the relationship between imposter feelings, mental health, and academic outcomes among students from underrepresented communities. Given where we're at in the academic year, where end of semester papers and final exams are approaching, we thought that this conversation about self-doubt and how to work with imposter feelings in colleges and universities would be useful for students to listen to. We'll talk about Dr. Coakley's research and experience with imposter feelings and how we can learn to use these feelings as a motivation rather than a limitation in our daily lives. Here is our conversation with Dr. Kevin Coakley. Dr. Coakley, welcome to the DEI podcast. Thank you for having me. Do you mind if I call you Kevin? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, uh, so Kevin, you study the imposter phenomenon and you try to understand how it impacts students of color. Just to give us some background, what can you tell us generally about what the imposter phenomenon is and and how you became interested in it? Sure. So the imposter phenomenon, simply put, um, would be feelings of um, being an intellectual fraud. It's the idea that individuals who are otherwise very intelligent, very competent, very accomplished, nevertheless feel like they are fooling people. They are they feel like if people could peer within the windows of their soul, they would see them not as being the incredibly um, competent and accomplished individuals that they are, but s instead see them as people who are just fooling other people. And so this idea of feeling like an intellectual fraud is at the core of the understanding of what it means to be an imposter. And what, why I became interested in the, in the concept is really somewhat serendipitous because I... Um, as I think you may know, I'm someone who has studied uh, African-American students and other uh, minoritized students and, and their academic and psychosocial experiences in higher education. And I'm always interested in, in environmental influences that impact um, various outcomes amongst um, students of color. And it just happened to be the case that I was doing uh, a literature review for some other um, paper, and I came across this this idea of the imposter phenomenon. I came across research um, by um, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. Pauline Clance, of course, um, being the individual who uh, is really credited, along with Suzanne Imes, um, credited with this idea of the imposter phenomenon. And I, and I came across this paper and I and I read it and I was like, wow, this this idea of the imposter phenomenon, first of all, I could really, I could identify with it. It resonated with me. And secondly, it seemed like an idea that would really fit in well with the type of research that I was doing. And so that's, so really it was, you know, rather serendipitous how I came across it. But once I came across it, I really um, latched onto the idea and started to um, 
become interested in doing research on the topic. Hmm. Yeah, the the paper that you that you mentioned by uh, Dr. Clance and Dr. Imes, if I'm not mistaken, that focused on high achieving women and looking at feelings of being an imposter uh, within that study group. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Um, so um, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes are both psychologists, and they were working um, with women um, from various. Um, backgrounds, you know, women who were professionals, um, graduate students, you know, women who were very um, accomplished and successful women. And during the course of their work with these women, they <clears throat> they realized that these women had something in common, that they kept talking about their um, self-doubt about themselves. And, and they heard these things with such regularity and so frequently that they decided to work with the women collectively because it helps to hear other people share the same sort of concerns. And it was during the course of this sort of work that they um, really sort of, I think, conceptualized and 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 and, and described this idea of the imposter phenomenon because of this work. And, and you're right, um, the women were, were mostly um, or predominantly sort of, you know, white women there were very few women of color, particularly at that time, because this was during um, the 70s. And so um, that context is important because when I came across the idea, uh, I immediately thought about applying the concept to students of color. And um, and so I had to sort of make that transition from how from the origins of the, the term to sort of ma- making it be more applicable to the sort of research that I was um, that I've been doing. Mm. One of the things I'm I'm curious about, and we'll go into some of the different layers of imposter experiences and what that looks like from different vantage points. But you know, in in common in common culture, pop culture, pop psychology, uh, what you're referring to as the imposter phenomenon is oftentimes called the imposter syndrome. What's your perspective on the characterization of imposter feelings as a syndrome? Yeah, I I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, you know, you know, first of all, just being, you know, a purist, um, the term, you know, was originally the imposter phenomenon. Again, you know, it came about in the seventies. And so when you think about the term syndrome, you immediately think about, you know, a more sort of clinical, more pathologizing term. And you think of something that is almost like diagnosed. And what we, you know, what we know is that it is not, you know, it is not a sort of a clinically diagnosable sort of thing. Uh, it is not something that you will see in the DSM, for example. And so this idea of the syndrome, you know, for me, it is too pathologizing and it is not within the spirit of the original sort of term, imposter phenomenon. But as you pointed out, um, in popular culture, this is the term that you will see. And, and quite honestly, even when you look up some of the work that I've done and when I've been asked to do talks, you know, people will use the term imposter syndrome, even though that is not the term that I use when I'm talking about it or when I'm writing about it. Mm. And so if this isn't something that is clinically diagnosable, where does, does the research tell us where the imposter syndrome or where feelings of being an imposter come from or why some people maybe have that experience and other people don't have it or don't have it to as, to as much of a degree? Well, again, going back to um, the original research, when Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes talked about it, they, they again, they were psychologists, and so they were um, really drawing upon their their clinical work, and they talked about 
um, working with women who had certain um, family and childhood experiences that that really contributed to the development of of the imposter phenomenon. Um, so, for example, they talked about you know women or you know girls you know at the time who would receive messages from their families you know that would you know sort of compliment them on you know sort of their social skills maybe their looks um, but very rarely ever complimented them about their intelligence and so they sort of proposed or hypothesized that because these um, young um, girls so um, infrequently heard messages about their intelligence and instead heard messages about other aspects of um, their confidence they began to internalize well maybe maybe I'm not smart. Maybe, you know, I, my strengths lie elsewhere. And so that was one common um, childhood experience that they sort of believe contributed to imposter feelings just, you know, from early on. Um, the other sort of experience was, you know, actually, you know, somewhat different where they would receive messages from their families that, no, you are incredibly intelligent, incredibly competent. Um, and, and and receiving those messages so frequently um, that did not necessarily always align with how they felt about themselves, or maybe they they had to work really hard to get the grades that they got, but the messages that they received from their family was, well, no, this should be really easy because you are like super smart, you are super competent, and feeling like th- they weren't really living up to this ideal that they were, you know, somehow, you know, incredibly, incredibly sort of confident because they felt that they had to work incredibly hard, much harder than what they should have. Um, but but the point here is that Clance and Imes really believe that it was these sorts of messages that girls in particular received from early on that really sort of contributed to this idea of um, imposterism later in their life. And, you know, and I think certainly there is some truth to that, although I suspect that there's probably more to it than than even their initial, initial conceptualization. Does it? Does having an experience of being an imposter or feeling like an imposter have more to do with the perceptions that people have of you, or is it more to do with your view of those perceptions? Um, it really—that's a really excellent question, and the researcher in me wants to say, you know, that's exactly what we need to be doing more research on. Now, I would say that I think it's it's a combination of both. Um, I think it's both how sort of you know you know sort of internally sort of manifested as well as sort of like how. Um, you feel the people see you. Mm. It's really interesting because it sounds like there are a number of different dimensions through which you can view or develop an experience of feeling like an imposter. One which you talked about is how are people maybe lifting me up and encouraging me and telling me I'm great. And maybe that's going beyond my own perception of my own capabilities. The other is being an environment maybe where you've achieved some success and the people around you maybe question your merit and question the way that um, whether or not you actually belong there. Something about this that's really fascinating to me is the the link between imposter feelings and the way that we rise or fall to meet the expectations that people set for us. And one of the things that I automatically think about when I think about this is research studies, and there are countless of them, that look at, for example, young black boys in elementary school and the way that a teacher's perspective of them, whether or not the teacher actually believes they will or won't succeed, has an impact on whether or not they actually will do well. 
you know, if a teacher believes that you're going to perform poorly, oftentimes this, the data shows that young black men fall to meet that that standard of expectation. Uh, do you have any perspective on that? Well, I mean, what you're describing is the classic idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So mm. uh, when um, when individuals sort of um, live up to or down to the expectations that they know um, other folks have about them. And, you know, and interestingly, that, you know, and the self-fulfilling prophecy is a different idea than the imposter phenomenon. But again, the researcher in me sort of listening to you sort of ask the question um, thinks that that would be a really interesting study to examine. You know, the you know how how are imposter feelings um, connected to um, sort of these self-fulfilling prophecy feelings that we know um, occur, particularly amongst, you know, like you said, young black boys who are stereotyped immediately from jump when they are um, in schools. Hmm. Kevin, I'm curious to know, in terms of uh, your own experiences with the uh, imposter phenomenon, what what exactly have your personal experiences been? Have you yourself experienced this? All the time. I might be experiencing a little bit of it now. Um, <laughs> but no, I, you know, so the first book that I um, wrote, um, is the myth of black anti-intellectualism. And I, in the first chapter, I share some anecdotes about my own um, sort of school experiences. And, you know, I was, you know, the student, you know, I I was a good student, you know, in grade school, middle school, high school, uh, you know, a, you know, a pretty strong student. And, you know, that led me to go to Wake Forest University. But, um, you know, I, I went there on an academic need-based scholarship. Um, but when I got there, I was I had a rude awakening um, because my first semester first semester was really quite disastrous. Um, I it was so bad that uh, I immediately was placed on academic probation, and so so for me, you know, it's it's a very personal sort of relationship with this idea of the imposter phenomenon because at Wake Forest University, um, even though I didn't have the language at the time when I was there. Now, in retrospect, as a scholar, I understand that what I was really feeling and experiencing was imposter feelings because I was in a place that, in fact, Wake Forest is very similar to Notre Dame. Um, but, you know, being a private school, being, you know, a, an incredibly rigorous academic school, um, being, you know, majority white with few uh, minoritized or students of color and, uh, you know, sort of on campus. And so, so for me, I very personally felt feelings of imposterism as a student at Wake Forest University, um, managed to, you know, graduate, um, managed to go to graduate school. And then those impulsive feelings presented themselves, you know, when I was a professional, um, young assistant professor, I'm trying to prove myself. Um, you know, I was not like many of my colleagues who had many publications, you know, or at least had several publications when they started their, their careers. I only had one publication. And it was quite intimidating being in a department of psychology, walking the hallways and seeing walls filled with articles that, that had been published by my new colleagues. And I, and that was something that I was expected to do. So it was very intimidating. And I very much, again, while not having the language at that time, I now sort of in retrospect understand that I was experiencing imp imposter feelings. And so really imposter feelings have been a part of my development, you know, from a student to a young professional, and even, you know, later in my career, once I had already established myself, you know, you would think that that Dr. Kevin Coakley, at this point in his career, would not have feelings of imposterism, but I still find myself 
from time to time, you know, experiencing and struggling with with these feelings. Hmm. You know, I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm resonating with with so much of it on a personal level because, you know, as a black man myself who was a first generation college student, then a first generation law student, uh, I definitely experienced feeling like I didn't belong or like I was an imposter, whether it was because I questioned my own merit or I felt like the eyes on me were were questioning that as well. And and certainly, you know, that feeling doesn't completely go away once you're sworn in as an attorney uh, and you've passed the bar exam. It stays with you. And I know from having multiple speakers come to the law school who are incredibly accomplished attorneys, judges, a lot of people do experience this. And and we've talked a bit about um, the initial paper uh, on imposter on the imposter phenomenon and the way that the 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 area has expanded since then. I guess my question is: It looks like there's clearly more than minorities, clearly more than women who experience this. I think it's maybe around the last statistic that I saw was seventy percent of people experience this, and obviously it lasts beyond your academic experience. Do these feelings ever go away? Do they, who are they impacting the most and do they ever go away? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, and let me say that the, you know, the 70% statistic is one that is, you know, frequently used, but in a paper that I co-authored um, with um, um, Dr. Bravada and some other folks, you know, our percentage was actually 80% or, or higher. And whenever wow. I give talks and I ask, you know, just this is anecdotally, when I ask people in the room how many people have ever felt like an imposter, it's generally almost 100% of the hands that are raised. So I, I suspect that that 70% figure is actually much higher than than what is typically reported. Um, th- does it ever go away? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I I don't know, you know, I don't know that it ever truly really goes away. I, I think it, it can diminish over time. I think that it might, you know, the feelings might be less prominent, less prevalent, but, you know, I'm not I'm not sure that they ever truly, really go go away. Um, and what was the second part of your question? Well, so wondering about um, about who who really gets impacted by by the imposter syndrome. So you know, again, going back to um, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, they believed that that women were more likely to experience imposter feelings, and in fact. Um, in their original paper, they state that, uh, you know, and they stated sort of almost, I mean, not parenthetically, but like in footnotes, that while men can experience imposter feelings, um, they typically don't experience them, you know, with the level of intensity that women experience those feelings. So they, they were saying that, you know, really sort of just based on their own clinical experience. Well, it, again, you know, as a researcher and, and being data driven, what we know from the literature is that they're really, you know, the, the, the findings are, are really equivocal um, in that regard. You know, men, you know, in some studies, you know, men have report just as high of imposter feelings as women. In other studies, um, there might be some gender differences, but 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 overall, um, we don't see that there is a strong sort of gender difference. Um, that being said, um, you know, I did publish a paper a few years ago uh, that found that that even though there weren't gender differences in imposter feelings, um, we found that for women, imposter feelings were more, were more connected or implicated to their to their grades than for men. 
Um, and so it actually in, in, in positive ways, if you can sort of, you know, imagine that. Um, so in other words, you know, feeling like an imposter really was, you know, associated with, uh, for women actually doing better um, academically than um, was found for men. So in that regard, there are some important um, gender differences. And then, of course, you know, what I'm most interested in is, you know, imposter feelings amongst people of color. And, you know, again, this is it's really interesting because there really isn't research that has found um, uh, people of color or minoritized individuals as being significantly higher in imposter feelings than than their white counterparts. You know, that research as of yet has has not been sort of supported. Um, but what 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 oftentimes happens is when people talk about people of color um, and imposter feelings, it's believed to be different. Um, that that and and what I've been arguing is that for uh, people of color, that when they feel like imposters, um, there's a more racialized component because their imposter feelings are often related to. Uh, messages that they are receiving in the environment around their race and feelings of belongingness that their white counterparts don't typically have to contend with. And so th- in that regard, I would say that there are some differences, even even though there may not be literal differences in like the amount of imposter feelings that, that um, groups have, but the reasons for these feelings might differ. So would, a, would an example of that be um, Asian students, for instance, experiencing imposter syndrome uh, because of the model minority myth and mm-hmm. being told maybe that they are so great in a way that they feel they can't live up to. But then maybe for black and brown students, uh, it's the opposite effect where they're told that they're not going to succeed. And so when they do find themselves in successful spaces, they question their own belonging and their own qualifications. Exactly. That, that is exactly correct. Mm. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, you mentioned something about uh, the the performance outcomes when it comes to grades for students. Could you talk a bit more about that? So, yeah, th- this is an area of, of research that we need a lot more work on. Um, again, in, in, in that study that I referenced, um, you know, it, it clearly sort of showed that for women, you know, uh, imposterism um, was linked to, to grades in a way that was not seen for, for men. Um, I believe just in terms of sort of conceptually, uh, maybe even theoretically, I believe that that imposterism can be or should be linked in some ways to achievement outcomes. Um, But, you know, quite honestly, there's not we don't have enough data, enough research that that shows that that link. And so I when I say it, I always sort of say it. tentatively, um, because I always like to be able to support things that I say with, with data. Um, and so we don't have a lot of data, you know, my study notwithstanding, um, we don't have a lot of data as of yet, but, but conceptually, um, and maybe even theoretically, I, 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 I can see why I can make an argument for why there should be, um, a link. Hmm. Kevin, one of the areas that I am curious about the relationship is between imposter feelings and this idea of being a perfectionist. Uh, In high-performing students, we tend to see um, traits of perfectionism. And just wondering, is there a correlation between those uh, those experiences and feeling like an imposter? There is definitely um, an association between perfectionism and uh, 
feeling like an imposter. I published a paper a few years ago where I actually examined that link. And, you know, one of the things about perfectionism is that, you know, there are different types of perfectionism. You know, you, you can have an adaptive perfectionism, um, which is essentially sort of, you know, you know, having high standards for oneself and and but reasonable high standards that that one can actually obtain. And then there is more of the uh, maladaptive perfectionism where one has really unreasonably high um, expectations for oneself that really, you know, you or no one else could really realistically meet. And and so what we know um, in terms of the association and what we um, found in my study is that there is a link between maladaptive perfectionism and imposter feeling. So when one has these unre- unrealistically, unreasonably high expectations that that no person could re- reasonably be expected to to meet, that th- that maladaptive perfectionism is very much associated with higher feelings of imposterism, which 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 makes sense. And so perhaps what you know we, you, we see in in law school and maybe med school and some other professional schools and graduate school is that students who who are incredibly accomplished um, students um, in some instances have unreasonably high expectations of themselves, which then can sort of fuel their imposter feelings. Mm. So speaking of students who are on the med school, law school level, you recently published a paper entitled Lawyering While Black, Perceived Stress as a Mediator of Imposter Feelings, Race-Related Stress, and Mental Health Among Black Attorneys. Can you talk a little bit about the study that you conducted for this paper and what your findings were? Yeah. So, uh, you know, this study really came about um, because of a talk that I gave in North Carolina um, for uh, a minority outreach uh, conference for um, lawyers. Um, and I think it was a, I think it was sponsored by like a, a lawyer assistance program, I think is what it's refer- what it's called. And so when I, you know, so when I gave the talk, it, it occurred to me that Wow, I'm speaking to, to a group of um, lawyers, most of whom identify as as racial and ethnic minorities, and I'm I'm always thinking about how can I get more research data to conduct studies, and so I arranged to to collect data um, as a part of that that talk, um, and so that's where that's how I was able to to even sort of you know conduct a study. But but essentially, I would you know they they invited me because they wanted me to you know I guess similar to sort of why I'm here um, today, they wanted me to sort of address you know amongst you know predominantly sort of black attorneys, um, feelings of um, imposterism and its link to mental health, and so um, that's really sort of where the idea came from, and and interestingly, uh, you know, and I'll talk about this a little bit today, but there's not a lot of research on the mental health of, of attorneys in general, but black attorneys in particular. Uh, I scoured the literature. I, I just searched, you know, um, intensely and, and was not really able to, to find anything. So so the idea of the study, I, I think, is is really important. And, and part of what I was interested in was, you know, examining sort of imposter feelings among um, black attorneys along with race-related stress, because we know that, that at least for, for many, you know, black attorneys, that the job is stressful. Um, there are oftentimes things um, related to sort of racial or racist incidents or experiences that contribute to the stressfulness of, of their jobs. And so um, we were interested in um, examining that 
uh, along with these impulsive feelings. And we included the variable perceived stress because, you know, psychologists, you know, perceived stress is a very important um, sort of variable because we you can take two individuals who experience the same phenomenon and one for one individual, it has a, a much stronger impact than the other. And oftentimes the difference is how they perceive that level of stress. One person may sort of perceive the incident in ways in, in much less detrimental way than someone else who experiences it the same way. So we wanted to um, include that as, as a variable in the study as well. And and what we found was that 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 race related stress um, was in, indeed sort of uh, predictive of um, mental health outcomes. Um, but it was a specific aspect of race related stress. So there are like three different dimensions. I don't want to bore you with all the details, but but the aspect that was most salient for black attorneys was something that we call cultural racism. And this cultural sort of racism or cultural race related stress is linked to the idea of 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 things that happen, you know, um related to sort of how police officers um sort of stereotype and and and, and mistreat disproportionately uh, um you know, sort of folks of color, black men in particular. And we found that that race-related stress related to those sorts of um, feelings very much was linked to sort of um, poor mental health outcomes. Um, and we also found that there were, you know, certainly there were some impulsive feelings that, that black attorneys experienced, which is sort of what we expected that, and those impulsive feelings were also linked to higher anxiety and higher depression. But But the most important finding from the study was actually related to perceived stress. And that when that that the reason that imposter feelings and the reason that race related stress was linked to poor uh, mental health outcomes is because of the perceived stress and that perceived stress it really explains why uh, race related stress and positive feelings, um, why they are harmful for for mental health. And so so the take home message is really um you know, at the most basic sort of psychological level, uh, helping individuals sort of reframe um, the experiences, you know, that they are having and, and sort of perceive them in ways that make the impacts of race-related stress and positive feelings much less harmful. I, I know I, I, that's a mouthful of stuff and it's probably psychological speak there, but. No, it's really, it's really interesting. The idea of perceived stress as well, I think it sort of, it touches on what we were discussing earlier when we were asking about do we look at imposter, at imposter experiences more from the perspective of how people view us or do we view it more from how we think we're being seen by other people? Mm. And so this idea of perceived stress, as a former law student, I can relate to it because you don't know what's inside the minds of your peers and your faculty members and the administration, but you know the statistics mm -hmm. about, what, 5% of the of the legal community we were talking about earlier, only 5% are black um, attorneys. And so that means there's going to be a limited number of spaces for black students um, in law school already. And, you know, the truth is whenever you're at any uh, top law school in the United States, you are at a predominantly white institution. And so to speculate, uh, do I belong here? Do I fit in? And understanding that that has an outcome uh, in terms of your performance you know, that makes sense to me. And so I'm curious, Kevin, just based on on that particular finding about uh, perceived stress, how do you think how do you think representation and having greater numbers of people who look like you in um, in a space uh, actually impacts your perceptions? 
Oh, I mean, you, I, you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Representation is 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 everything. Um, you know, how many, how often, you know, have you sort of found yourself in a situation where you're in a space and you you look around and you don't see people that you can identify with, and and perhaps maybe feeling a bit self conscious about that. Representation is so important because when you see people um, who look like you, people with whom you can identify with, um, it it really sort of sends the message that that you do belong and that you can succeed. And when you and when you don't see representation, it of course it 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 really sort of um, sort of conjures up feelings of of almost like this sort of existential doubt. Like you know, can I do this? Do I do I really belong here? I mean, th- there must be a reason why there aren't a lot of people who look like me here. And maybe maybe I really don't belong here and, and so so representation is so incredibly important i, I, I cannot overstate that mm. yeah i was reading a paper uh recently by some some researchers at the university of wisconsin divine and cox and they were talking about specifically unconscious bias and uh the the struggle with breaking with breaking stereotypes um in particular stereotypes about race and one of the things that was really interesting was that um, what they found was through a number of different uh, uh, through a number of different studies, researchers have estimated that um, the imbalance in confirmation bias is uh, able to be whittled down to a mathematical uh, ratio, where it takes about three instances of um, of someone breaking a stereotype about you in order to balance one instance of somebody having that stereotype. So. Essentially, what that means is 75% of the time, if we're seeing that our stereotype is wrong, it only takes about 25% of confirmation bias in order for that to be counteracted. (laughs) Um, And so this idea that we're talking about representation and the way that it impacts impacts your perception of yourself, to the people around you who may themselves have those stereotypes about you, you know, you don't know, but they may have those stereotypes. Um, it sounds like, it sounds like the, the, um, the stereotype itself and maybe how that will affect you, um, is in part due to the fact that it's so difficult to actually change people's minds. Um, and when there are so few of you in a space that can seem near to impossible. Um, I mean, you, you said it all there. I mean, it's, we, we know that, that stereotypes, you know, are, are, are hard to change. And, and one of the ways that you can change them is through repeated sort of um, exposure. And as you've just said that in this case, that you really had, you know, you really have to have, you know, repeated opportunities to sort of, um, sort of present, you know, to, 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 to be presented with a, a different picture, a, a more positive picture, um, an understanding of 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 who you are and your deservingness to be there, but this has to occur. A, a, a one shot deal isn't going to likely be sufficient. It has to occur um, multiple times. Hmm. Right, and so it seems like there's. I mean, if we take this back to where we started, where we're talking about having um, about people's perceptions of you and your perceptions of yourself, it seems like in order to address imposter syndrome in the way that it affects different segments of society, both of those 
both of those issues need to be sort of looked at. How can we break the stereotypes that other people have? And then how can we also reframe our own stereotypes about ourselves? Yeah, no, absolutely. When, you know, so if, if, if people have stereotypes, for example, um, about black folks and, and not, you know, being as intelligent, you know, as other folks or whatever, and they have repeated experiences, you know, where they are interacting with black people who are, in fact, really intelligent, who are very accomplished, um, and it starts to chip away. And it can't, again, it can't be like, you know, one experience, like, you know, so because they can just say, well, that's, you know, that's the exception. Um, but if they have multiple experiences in multiple settings, then it starts to really sort of chip away at this, this stereotype that they have. And then, you know, hopefully they will act upon their sort of changing perceptions in ways that then you know, will not sort of contribute to the these individuals feeling like imposters um, because of how, you know, they are being sort of perceived and interacted with. So it is, it's a, it's a sort of a symbiotic sort of relationship. Mm. Um, mm. Curious, again, from the, the law student perspective here, um, when we're looking at the outcomes for black students or maybe minoritized law students uh, in general, are there any were there any was there anything from the research that that looked at their their performance outcomes actually in their academic programs? Um, no, and and let me let me clarify. So th this study was you know really with um, established attorneys at various stages of their career. So there were attorneys who were you know at the beginning stages, you know maybe just two or three years out. And then, you know, and then there were attorneys who had like 25, 30 years of experience. So, uh, so they weren't law students. Uh, although I would love to conduct a study with law students, maybe, you know, some day down the road that can happen. Hmm. Yeah. And in terms of the performance for, for attorneys, uh, you mentioned that uh, there were reports of higher levels of, um, of anxiety um, and stress. Do we have any sense of what that actually uh, looks like in terms of uh, how people are able to function in their careers? Um, that is a that is a good question. I mean, I we we didn't you know so we we don't have data to to be able to answer that question. But but what I can tell you, and and this was really interesting, and we didn't even emphasize it in the paper itself, um, was that there were differences uh, based on. Um, years as a as a lawyer, and so we found, um, and again, we didn't really sort of talk about it a lot, but we found that that the attorneys who were earliest in their careers uh, were actually um, most prone or susceptible to uh, sort of having higher anxiety and higher depression than those individuals who had been in in the you know in the profession for twenty twenty plus years, and and that was a really interesting finding. Um, and then, you know, but when you think about it, 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 it probably makes sense because, you know, when you're starting off, you know, you feel like you have a lot to prove your feelings of, of you know, self-doubt or belongingness or imposterism are probably at, at their highest, you know, near the beginning of your, your career. Um, so that certainly makes sense. That definitely, I would imagine, uh, gives a lot of hope to a lot of students who themselves are probably having a high degree of imposter experiences um, in in school, and I can't help but but ask. You know, you mentioned when you were talking about your own experiences of feeling like an imposter that 
you know, was something that started uh, in school and did continue after you became a professional. Has that experience diminished for you over time? Yeah, no, it certainly has. I mean, you know, when I when I talk about, you know, sometimes feeling like an imposter, I mean, it's the, the feelings are greatly diminished. I mean, it's nothing like when I think about, you know, where I started as a young assistant professor and and now being, you know, sort of a, a, a full professor and with an adult professorship, I mean, I, I certainly am in a much different place and, and don't feel like an imposter the way that I did at the beginning of my career. Um, and whatever imposter feelings I may on occasion experience um, pale in, in comparison to how I felt as a young assistant professor. Um, so, so yeah, so certainly um, they, they do um, diminish over time. Mm. One of the things when I was doing a little bit of research about experiences of being an imposter that I was struck by was the the amount of people who, in the eyes of the public, are incredibly accomplished, who have those feelings for themselves that I'm an imposter, I'm going to get found out, I don't actually belong, I've somehow pulled the wool over people's eyes. You know, people like Michelle Obama, people like, uh, you know, amazing actors like Tom Hanks and Viola Davis, uh, even... I believe uh, Albert Einstein reported of had, having experiences of um, having fooled people into, you know, into believing in his genius. And I'm just curious, you know, when we're looking at people who are that accomplished and even people like yourself who are in your in your field, a Goliath, we can diminish it. But it seems like those feelings are still are still there. And how do we work with those um, when it seems like they just don't go away? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, some will make the argument that that impulsive feelings in some ways can can serve an adaptive purpose. Um, you know, you it's interesting, you know, you mentioned uh, Michelle Obama and Viola Davis and both of those individuals I referenced, you know, in, in the talks that I that I give. But, you know, I'll never forget, you know, um, Michelle Obama, when she talked about her feelings of um, imposterism, um, basically said that she dealt with it dealt with those feelings by by hard work essentially i mean it, it sounds cliche, you know rather cliche to sort of say you know hard work but but in this instance you know um individuals who that you've mentioned who are incredibly you know sort of you know accomplished individuals um when they have experienced these impulsive feelings they nevertheless they have worked in they have worked and they continue to work for those who are you know still alive incredibly hard um you know at their at their craft and and so yeah i mean your your question about you know whether these feelings you know you know will ever go away given you know the fact that these in individuals are at the top of their fields and they still still experience and experience those feelings I mean, that's the million dollar question. I mean, I and I, I'll go back to what I said earlier. I don't know that those feelings ever truly go away 100%. Um, I do think that they become diminished, and I think I think even Michelle Obama would have would probably admit that that whatever feelings of imposterism that she, you know, has experienced as an adult would would certainly have diminished as she's gotten, you know, sort of older and, you know, because I think, you know, when I've heard her talk about it, it was within, you know, part of it was within the context of being the first lady, mm -hmm. being the first black first lady and, and, and all that goes with that. And, you know, I, and, you know, I can imagine, I'm not to speak for her, but I, I can imagine that, 
that she might have, you know, had some impulsive feelings, you know, at the beginning of you know, Barack Obama's presidency, but certainly toward the end, you, know, you could see that she was she she was really much more comfortable in her skin, so to speak, and she she was comfortable just sort of being who she is and and not having to sort of be whom other people wanted her to be or expected her to be, and so I would imagine that whatever impulsive feelings she may have experienced uh, might have diminished somewhat as she got more comfortable in that role. Yeah, as I'm listening to you talk, it makes me think. Maybe getting older and more experienced is something that helps diminish imposter feelings, but it also sounds like there's a component of it that has to do with imposter feelings linked to new experiences. Hmm. So if you're, you know, Michelle Obama was an attorney for several years, and so perhaps in that space she felt incredibly confident and she right. had, you know, fewer feelings of feeling in a, like an imposter, but then to be the first lady for the first time, and in particular for for students of color, for people of color, uh, so many of us who achieve these, you know, high, high accomplishments, who r rise to certain levels of um, in our profession, we're the first or we're some of the first. And so there, you know, there's an added layer of maybe self-doubt because you don't have that representation that we were talking about before to sort of make you feel like others like me have done it. I can do it too. In addition to having the sense of I'm completely new at this and I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing. No, no, that, that that's absolutely right. I, I think, um, I think with, with experience, um, comes wisdom and, and just, um, being more confident, um, in one skin. But I, I loved what you said that, that, you know, having a, you know, having experience, you know, she was an attorney for many years, very successful and, and being sort of confident um, in that role. But then becoming the first lady, um, very different role, very different experience. And so I, I think that you hit the nail on the head. I think that that, you know, being sort of thrust into a, a new and totally different and foreign experience um, is, 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 is fertile grounds for uh, facilitating, you know, imposter feelings. We've talked a little bit about some ways to address imposter feelings, at least when they're being received or experienced in a negative way. You know, you've mentioned um, reframing and trying to change the way that you look at uh, a, a perceived experience. We've also talked about representation. Something that I'm curious about, though. So in 2016, uh, Dr. Amy Cuddy, who's a social psychologist, uh, gave a TED talk where she talked about um, this idea of power posing and essentially fake it till you make it. And the idea was, you know, if you if you put yourself in a posture of confidence and you fake that, eventually psychologically you will start to believe and embody that in a more natural way. And you know, certainly there have been some critics of this uh, idea. <laughs> um I think partly because of the issues with replicability, but I'm curious about this concept of fake it till you make it. And so from the perspective of overcoming imposter feelings or, you know, not letting them become a hindrance, is fake it till you make it a reasonable strategy? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to confess that 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 doesn't resonate with me very well. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, and I can imagine what some of the criticisms of that would be. Um, I mean, I, I get what she's trying to say. But um, I, I guess for me, you know, the idea of sort of like faking it until you make it, it still undermines the very the notion that you are competent. You you don't you shouldn't have to fake it um, because you are competent. You are deserving, um, and because 
you know, because you are competent, because you are deserving, to me, sort of telling someone to fake it until they make it undermines the notion that that they are competent, um, and at least the way that I'm interpreting and understanding what you know what is being argued here. So, so I don't know that I would promote that idea mm. as you know. I think there are some other ways, um, other strategies that one can employ to sort of um, um, cope with um, impulsive feelings. Um, and I'm happy to sort of you know share a couple of those. Um, alternative ways of, of, of coping. <laughs> yeah, please do, because it sounds like, at least in some cases, imposter feelings can be a motivator rather than a hindrance to people. Yeah, yeah, no, um, you know, it, the idea being that that imposter feelings, you know, will result in people sort of, you know, working extra hard to prove themselves that will oftentimes sort of re, uh, result in uh, increased or better sort of performance. Uh, but I also like to remind people that th- that oftentimes comes with a cost. Um, it comes at, comes with a mental health and psychological cost. So you, so you can be a high achiever and, and do incredibly well um, because you, you know, sort of you're working so hard to sort of tr- prove yourself. Um, but it can come at the expense of, of your mental well-being, your mental health. And so, so I always want to cost people about you know, sort of recognizing both sides, there's two sides to that. But in, in, in terms of um, it, um, sort of strategies to to deal with um, imposter feelings, uh, there are a few things that I, you know, would recommend. Um, so the first thing is keeping, you know, keeping a diary uh, or some, some way of sort of documenting your successes. Why is this important? Well, part of what we know about um, feeling like an imposter is, is that there is a tendency to diminish um, what one has done well, um, and so if we if we encourage people to say, you know, every week or every two weeks, even every month, take the time to actually document all those things that you did well, all all the little mini successes that you've had, and and when you do this, you can sort of keep a chart of, you know, what I have. I'm actually doing a lot better than what I give myself credit for, but you have to take the time to actually to document it and then to sort of review it periodically. And so that's a real easy um, sort of um, intervention that one could use to sort of address feelings of imposterism. Uh, another another sort of um, thing that can happen or that we would suggest is, you know, I'm a psychologist, so, you know, I would always sort of promote therapy if, if those imposter feelings get to the point where they start to be disruptive of your life. So I'm always a promoter of sort of seeking, um, you know, sort of mental health. But, you know, one step before that is, you know, really sort of talking about um, your imposter feelings with, with people with whom you, you trust. Part of what happens with um, sort of people who have imposter feelings is, is that they suffer in silence. Um, they don't want, oftentimes they don't want people to know that they are having these feelings. And particularly if you are in very competitive environments, you don't want to give people, you know, any sort of advantage to get a step up on you. And so you, you, you keep what you might perceive to be a weakness to yourself. But, but what we need to remember is that you are not alone, that if you are sort of feeling like an imposter, I can promise you that there are other people who are likely feeling the same way. And it 
oftentimes it's easier to talk with people with whom we sort of perceive some sort of shared social identity, whether it be based on race or gender or, or some other social identity. But but to talk with someone uh, and, you know, and be really candid about, you know, what you're feeling and experiencing. And more often than not, you will see that they are feeling, you know, or have struggled with the same types of feelings. And so it can be very affirming and validating to know that you're not alone um, and you don't have to, quote unquote, suffer alone in this regard. Mm. Yeah. As I listen to you, one of the things that immediately comes to mind, you know, we were talking about representation. There are a number of students at Notre Dame at the law school, for example, who are first generation students, first generation college, first generation immigrants, some of them just first generation law school, but they fall under that umbrella and one of the things that I've always noticed that really makes an impact on the way that they perform and just how they view themselves is when they find out that some of their faculty members here are also first generation. And, you know, you look at faculty at a place like Notre Dame and you don't always think that they started from the same roots as a first generation mm -hmm. student did. And it's kind of that that acorn oak tree scenario where when they can see it in someone who is so accomplished, they can see it in themselves and not just uh, normalizing the conversation, but normalizing it with people who are at different stages in their careers is something that helps, uh, at least from what we've seen so far, helps those students to um, to feel a little bit more like they belong in this space. Yeah. And I would I would go one step further with that. And, and that is to have those individuals, those first-generation professors, um, those professors, you know, of color, to have them um, talk openly and honestly about their own vulnerabilities and, and own experiences of imposterism. Um, too often, um, people who are in positions of, of power and authority uh, sort of have this veneer of invincibility and and then the people who sort of look up to them only see that. And so I always encourage, which is why I'm always really open, you know, with, with my students and with whomever about the experiences that I've had and, and struggles that I've had with imposterism because you you have to sort of normalize it um, so that people can see that, you know what, it's okay. Um, you know, it's, it's normal for me to be feeling this way and it doesn't have to be sort of defining of, 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 of who I am and of of my capabilities and potentialities because I can see that there are these incredible um, law professors who um, are very accomplished um, first generation um, law professors law professors of color and and they are they can talk about their own experiences of of uh, feeling vulnerable and and feeling like an imposter and I I, I tell people you cannot overstate the significance and the importance of hearing those types of people uh, candidly share those those experiences. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of you know Dean Cole. Uh, dean Marcus Cole is uh, the first black dean that the law school has ever had, and even he talks about having experiences where he doesn't always feel like he belongs in the shoes that he occupies. And I won't even start with our students for me as you know a younger black professional hearing that from someone like him really makes a difference in how uh how i view what i'm capable of and how i view my sense of belonging because you know when you see people like that um really express that amount of vulnerability um it 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 does resonate in a really um 
in a really powerful way. One of the things that I want to uh, touch on quickly is the idea, uh, just with what we're talking about here, of of reframing. Um, and you know, I think that when we talked initially about why you didn't like the idea of imposter experiences being characterized as a syndrome and the idea that it suggests some kind of a pathology or it's something that remains with you, something that uh, came up for me was this idea of imposter feelings being um, being maybe temporary or, you know, on a moment to moment basis, rather than being something that you that you attach to your identity. You know, this is a part of who I am. It's always going to be this way. Um, it sounds like it more often is the case that it's something that comes and goes circumstantially. Yeah. Yeah. In psychology, we refer to, you know, state or trait um, sort of personality things, you know, things that are sort of situational or dispositional. And in this case, you know, what, you know, what I think what you're saying is, is that you don't, you don't want, and it, it's actually kind of related to the idea of some people ask the question whether um, being an imposter or having positive feelings is is like an identity. Um, and I definitely have strong reactions to that. Um, I, I do not believe it is an identity because that suggests that it it, it, it it's a permanent part of who you are. Um, it um, I, I, I agree with what you're sort of suggesting that it, it really is, you know, I think more situational. Um, and, and I really like what you said earlier that, that especially in instances of new experiences, um, that will really likely prompt people's impulsive feelings to, to arise. Um, but no, I, 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 I would push back against the idea that, that impulsive feelings, um, are somehow a sort of a, a permanently part, a permanent part of sort of, um, one's being or identity, um, that, yeah, I, I certainly would not agree with that. And Kevin, touching on that idea um, that new experiences can cause imposter feelings to arise and maybe tying it into what you mentioned earlier that uh, the statistic from your latest research is not even 70%, but 80% and likely more than that of society are people who experience feelings of being an imposter. At least we know that sometimes they might have those experiences. Um, is can we assume that anyone doesn't have these feelings? I know sometimes we'd like to think perhaps the straight white man in the world who doesn't experience maybe is the same type of underrepresentation, you know, if we're speaking in broad strokes, um, or the same type of discrimination might not have those feelings. But certainly anyone can feel like they don't belong or feel, feel that uh, maybe they've gotten to where they are by somehow convincing people that they were more than they than they actually feel that they are themselves. Yeah, no, I mean, you would think that in theory, anyone can um, experience feelings of imposterism and, and, and likely have. Um, but I, I can tell you anecdotally, you know, you know, in in the many talks that I've given when I when I asked the question, um, the only times that I can recall um, individuals not raising their hands when I, when, when I asked the question, how many of you have ever felt like an imposter at, at any point during the course of your life? The only um, times I've had, you know, people not raise their hand, they've typically been white men, um, which is, and not, not frequently because, you know, in most instances, white men will raise their hand, but, but in the instances where I have not had people raise their hand, they tended to be white men. And they've quite simply said, you know, I've, 
you know, during the course of my life, I've never felt that way. I can honestly say I've never felt that way. You know, and other people are sort of looking at them incredulously, like, really? Like, you've never, ever experienced that? And they're like, no, I've never experienced that. I'm experiencing a bit of incredulity myself, <laughs> just at the notion. And I wonder if it has to do with calling it imposter experience or if we called it by something else. You know, uh -huh. have you ever felt like you don't belong or have you ever felt like you you know, you were kind of pulling the wool over folks' eyes or maybe you weren't as, you know, qualified for the job as they thought you were. If people, you know, if that demographic would raise their hands more. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's a good question. Um, I it's it, it was it was just really hard to believe for so many of us um, when we sort of, you know, sort of listen to them, you know, sort of say this. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it I, I I think that for a small small percentage of people out there they likely would say they have never experienced it and I, if and i i seem to vaguely recall there might have been even one instance where um where a woman and, and it might have even been a woman, woman of color i, I forget it's, it's, it was some time ago but some some demographic other than a white male actually said the same thing. And, and again, that was really startling to me. Now, again, this was like, you know, one person out of like the hundreds of people that I typically, you know, sort of talk to. So, hmm. Kevin, there are a lot of law students and prospective law students who come from underrepresented communities who are listening to this podcast and uh, no doubt are taking a lot away from uh, from what you've had to say. Is there anything else that you would like to to put out there for those people who are listening? Well, I, I think that I would, you know, sort of like to say that, you know, feeling like an imposter at any get, given point in time um, is not an uncommon um, feeling um, that many folks, um, especially folks from, you know, sort of marginalized social identities, um, many folks will oftentimes feel that way, but it it does not have to define you, um, and it should not define you. Uh, you can you can sort of manage and 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 cope with, and ultimately sort of um, really move beyond those feelings um, in very sort of healthy ways. And I would not, you know, and I just I guess I just want to tell people that that you do not have to be defined by uh, feeling like an imposter. Um. Dr. Kevin Coakley is a psychologist at the University of Michigan. He researches the imposter phenomenon and the relationship between imposter feelings and mental health and academic outcomes among students from underrepresented communities. Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the DEI podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. The DEI podcast at Notre Dame Law School is produced by Notre Dame Studios. Every episode, we sit down with important voices in law, culture, society, and business to talk about issues that touch all of us. If you liked what you heard today, become a subscriber and get notified every time we upload an episode. And tune in next time for another great conversation on issues that touch us all. Until then, take care.